0: This here? That's better. How's that? We're good. We're good to go. Hi everyone. Will you turn to someone and say hi please? It's been a chaotic morning. I feel like I've been organising a gazillion things. I need to take a breath. I need to control less. Fantastic. I think we've got some sound. It's always nice to talk. Good. Three things as I start this morning I want you to be aware of. Number one, this afternoon, if you would like to get fit and do some exercise, we have our crank cycling at 1.30 Lila Lake. I will be there. I want to bring a friend and I want to try and get fit, so that's the first one. The second one is, just to let you know, the giving last month for NCR was actually above budget and we just want to say thank you for that, it was brilliant and we want for that to continue and uh, just giving is a thing uh, financially that's a a God followers thing and so if you're here this morning and that's new to you, no expectation there whatsoever, but it was just really good to be able to say um, we've been above and exceeded our budget for, for last month. And the third thing I want to say is if you want to follow us this morning and you have an app um, and you don't necessarily have a, a Bible with you, but you want to follow this morning, that's where you can go to. You can download this Version Bible app. and We're looking at the book of Mark in chapter eight. That's what Flick just read to us a moment ago from the New International Version along the way. It's Easter time. It's Easter time and around Easter time each year, we ask, kind of ask the question, if you like, apart from should we play football on Good Friday, um, who is this person and what's the whole Easter celebration about? And so this last uh, month, this month, we're actually looking at this question that was so aptly reenacted here. Well done, Tim Swain, Allah Jesus. Um, this morning I uh, was asking, who is this man? I was reading a survey this past week uh, of a thousand Australians just surveyed uh, in the last few years. And eight out of ten said, we believe Jesus um, was an historical person. That's good. You agree with the historians. Um, and he died on a Roman cross. And then 40% of those surveyed said, we actually believe he came back to life again. That's interesting. So many people actually agreeing to those things. I wonder what kind of Jesus they had in mind, though. Was he the gentle Jesus, meek and mild one? Uh, was he the humanitarian Jesus, the justice-seeking Jesus? Which man were they thinking died on a cross and even for many of them believed he came back to life again? That's interesting. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia captures this whole theme really well. Last week we looked at the scene in which they were talking about Aslan, a stereotype of Jesus, a sort of image of Jesus as a a lion. And uh, the Pavensi children asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, because they didn't know who Aslan was, they said, who is he? And they asked this question, is he safe? To which Mr. and Mrs. Beaver reply, is he safe? This is in the book version. Of course he's not safe but he's good. C.S. Lewis wanted to portray that this wasn't just a gentle Jesus when you try and answer that question, who is he? He's someone that is good, but he is not safe. In this second section this morning that we saw from the Dawn Treater, um, Aslan says to the children, I brought you here so that you might understand who I am, so when you go back to your own country, your own place, you will begin to learn my name. And so the question we're asking this month is, whose name is it and who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? So what does this this name mean and who is this Jesus that we might even think of in our culture coming up to Easter time? Well, the scene that, that Felicity just read for a moment ago is that they're up in, in the remote areas of the northern, one of the most northern regions of Galilee. In fact, it's up in a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a place of rocks. It's it's furthermost place away from Jerusalem, the city where all of the, the temple is, where God is supposed to dwell. Um, and the Jewish people have all of their festivals. And uh, it's in that particular place that this question is asked. Uh, Jesus turns to his disciples he asked a question that Aslan was just talking about a moment ago that we saw on the screen. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? What name are you understanding me by? You've seen my miracles. You've seen me feed people uh, with a small amount of bread, thousands. You've seen me uh, cast out demons. You've seen me um, calm the storm. You've seen me declare forgiveness over people's lives. So now, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies with these words, You are the Messiah. Put in contemporary English terms, it would be this. You are Jesus Christ. Now, many of you here this morning might be thinking Jesus Christ is just like the name. Let's just leave it up there for a sec, Dan. Um, a surname like Troy Arnott. It's Jesus Christ. So that's his surname. In fact, this word Christ is the Greek word for the word we just read a moment ago, Messiah. And the Messiah means, that word is used... If you anoint a prophet or a priest or a king, they would designate. Use that word, Messiah or Christ. Some of you might be thinking, "Oh, I, I never knew that. I thought it was just a surname." No, it's actually a title, Jesus Christ. You might have heard this name used in some of the work sites that you come across. You might have heard this name uh, down the street. You might have heard this name when someone has hit their um, uh, their thumb with a hammer. Uh, you might have heard this in, in some of your workplaces a- and you could turn to the person and say, oh really, do you believe that? And they'll look at you and say, what? Say, do you believe that Jesus is Messiah, is Christ, is anointed one, really? Uh, it will go way over their head, but you could give it a shot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now when Thanks Dan. When when Peter declares this, you and I probably have no understanding about the, the, the breadth of expectation that that word and that simple declaration meant in that far off place, the most remote place from Jerusalem that Jesus Had gone. So to unpack that this morning, I'm just gonna need a helper up here. Jed, could you please come up here? Jed, where are you? Can you please come up and sit on this chair for me for a minute? Because I am gonna tell a story in order that we can understand who, this, the meaning of this word, Messiah. So I'm gonna put this on your head for a moment. Does that work? That looks great. Uh, men back in that day had long hair, Jed. Okay. And so what we had is, if you cast your minds back to about 160 BC, there was a, a, a man, a tyrant, uh, a Syrian ruler who ruled all of Israel, that, that whole region, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Literally Epiphanes, he self-styled, said God incarnate. And he began to Hellenize or make everything in Jerusalem or Israel Greek. He brought in all of the Greek games. He started to put the Greek god statues up all throughout the country. He even did one um, uh, thing that, that just tipped the point for all of the Israel uh, Israelites that were living there, the Jewish people. Is he even went into the temple, the one temple where the Jewish God Yahweh dwelt, and he sacrificed a pig and set up an altar to the god Zeus and sacrificed a pig before it. Now, this was the most profane thing that you could possibly do. And it was a tipping point for many of the people in the countryside, a particular family by the name of Matthias Maccabees, the Maccabean family. And there was one particular Maccabean son by the name of Judas, otherwise known as Judas the Hammer. And he would go around the countryside saying, I'm going to hammer you. I'm going to hammer you. No, no, a bit harder. I'm going to hammer you. Just think of your sister. I'm gonna hammer you. I'm gonna hammer you. Now we don't want to breed violence around this place here. But that was pretty good, wasn't it? You see, Judas the hammer, he said he had enough. And so what they led is in that family led a revolt that actually mobilised all of the the countryside around about. And unbelievably, they overtook the temple again. They captured all of the precincts and they established, if you like, they pushed back the madman Antiochus Epiphanes. And they established their own Hasmonean reign for up to a 100 years, just before the time of Jesus. This dynasty ruled because there was a family who led them. Now, if you had have said to any Jewish people around at that time, is Judas the hammer, who's going around saying, I'm going to hammer you. Right. To all of the Syrian people who had infiltrated their country. If you had have asked anyone, is Judas Maccabees a kind of Messiah? They would have said, of course he is. He's done two things we expect messiahs to do. He cleanses the temple or rebuilt it if it's been destroyed. And he pushes out pagan overlords that have been infiltrating our country. The two things messiahs are known to do. And he was going around the countryside saying, I'm going to have you. Exactly. And he did it for about 100 years. Meanwhile, there was things changing over in Italy all the way over there. Do we have anyone of Italian descent here this morning? You know what's coming, so you're not going to say anything, don't you? I think we have someone by the name of Rosetta here in the room. Ro, are you here? Could you please come up here, Ro? Where are you? Come on. I know you're here this morning. Because his name is, her name is known as Ro Cash, but really her name is pronounced, what is it? Rosetta. because she is from a family that comes all the way from... Alapia. Alapia in... Calabria. in... See, this is what Italians do. You have to get the pronunciation exactly correct. Because you wrote Italian and you spoke Latin at that time. So, can you speak some Latin for us, please? Oh, thank you. Very good. Do you know what that means? No, that's okay. Just so we know you're really Italian, would you say hello to us this morning in Italian? Yeah, and we are supposed to reply... Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Very good. All the way over, hundreds of miles away in a place called Rome, Julius Caesar was beginning to um, rule the Senate and through a whole lot of bloodthirsty shedding of blood and, and wars and battles, eventually he ascended to a throne, if you like. He established himself as being the ruler. In fact, it was his son, adopted son Augustus Caesar that it said brought peace and harmony to the whole world. In fact, four months after Julius Caesar's assassination, sorry about that, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) they were having a festival day and, and a comet, maybe Halley's Comet, actually appeared for seven days and all of the people celebrating in that festival said, surely that is Julius Caesar ascending to the thrones of heaven. He is a God. Therefore, anyone who is his adopted son is on earth deemed to be the son of God, Julius. And so the way in which they brought about their wonderful peace and established their their supremacy over all the land was what's known as the Pax Roma or the Peace of Rome. And they did it through sheer brutality. 4 BC, just before um, Jesus, around the time Jesus was born, when Herod the Great died, there was an uprising in Sepphoris. And Julius, no, actually it was Augustus Caesar, sent a legion down and literally Killed and decimated thousands of people, 2,000 men crucified, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands sent off into slavery. And that was how Caesar Augustus, the ruler over in Rome, established his peace. So if you like, when Jesus is on a rocky, hilly outcrop in Caesarea Philippi, where there's already been a temple nearby set up to venerate and worship Caesar as God, just close by in Caesarea Philippi. And he has this, this image of the Maccabeans and what is expected. Cleanse the temple and, and, and get rid of pagan overlords by saying, I'm gonna have it. And he goes on and on because he, he really wants to get his sister. And, <laughs> and then Jesus asked this question, now in that context. What about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why? Because what does Rome do to anyone who dares to claim to be a king? Well, they crucify them. And in fact, at that very moment, the disciples are thinking, great. He's finally revealed his hand, just like Judas the hammer. They're thinking to themselves, we're going to go to Jerusalem we're going to kill and overthrow Caesar's representative pilot and we're going to establish another reign, a reign of God through might and power and tyranny and the sword, just like Judas Maccabees. Would you put your hands together for our Caesar and our Judas this morning? Thank you. And then these words come. Peter took him aside when Jesus said, I tell you what, the Messiah that I'm going to be is not the one that's self-styled after Judas Maccabees. That's not adopting the same power of Rome. What I want to do is I actually want to be a Messiah that dies and I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be brutalized by the rulers and I'll rise on the third day. And the disciples have no idea. When he says these words, Peter turns to him because he has all of these ideas floating around and expectation in his head about what a Messiah would do. That Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, knowing what was at stake, he said, get behind me, Satan. You're talking, if you like, like the very words of the evil one himself. Because the evil one styles himself after the kingdoms of this earth. In fact, he's the one who actually forces and influences Evil for evil. And he said, you don't have your mind set on the way God thinks, but you're thinking just like a human being. Jesus understood his kingship to be very different. He had firstly an image from the past from Isaiah reflecting that he would be a suffering servant 500 years before. A man by the name of Isaiah, a spokesperson, a prophet for God, said these words about someone who would come and be a suffering servant. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid upon him the sins and the wrong and the evil of us all. You see, Jesus understood his role as a king to be very different to the kings of this earth. He would be a suffering servant who would pay a price for the world. And then there was another image that was very much at the forefront of his mind, that he would be a servant king, not a brutal king. Rejoice, O people of Zion! Zechariah writes 500 years before Jesus arrives, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem a few weeks afterwards and he summons his disciples to go and find a little donkey, a colt that he could ride in towards Jerusalem, he understands completely this is a symbolic act. Jesus rides on a donkey and everyone knows this is what has been foretold and prophesied, this man. And so the people come out and they lay their, their wreaths before him, their palm branches, and they say, you are the king uh, after David's line, the one who is coming. And he goes to the temple and the leaders don't accept him. And he returns the day after and in a symbolic act, a gesture of of condemnation and judgment, he turns the tables over of the money and he says, this place isn't a place of peace. This place has become a den for robbers and bandits and violence. So what do they do? The tipping point for the hierarchy, the high priesthood, the aristocracy. Jesus shuts down the temple, a sign of judgment, the servant king, the suffering one. And so he stands before the high priest, God's representative a few days later. And the high priest asks him the question we've been unpacking this morning and unpacking this entire month. The same question, if you like, That Jesus asked Peter and Peter responded, you are the Messiah. But now it's asked as a question, are you the king, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And finally, Jesus lays down his gloves at the end of his journey and says, I am. And you will see the son of man self-designation, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And in so saying these words, he says to them, what I've done in the temple the day before is right and I'll be vindicated and I am going to sit at the right hand of God himself. And it's in that very moment, the high priests say enough. You make yourself so close to be God that we declare what you have said to be Blasphemous. And it's from that moment on, they take him to Pilate and they say, this man claimed to be a king, a messiah. And if a king, therefore, he is an enemy of Caesar. There's only one thing you can do or you aren't a friend of Caesar. You must crucify him. And so they do. In a week's time. The world pauses and celebrates, if you like, or thinks about not which hot cross bun they're going to eat, not who's playing on Good Friday or if it will ever come, but some people choose to pause for a moment and reflect upon an event that took place 2,000 years ago. So they took Jesus out. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and they stripped him naked and they knelt before him as they flogged him and they spat upon him and they cursed him. And they said these words to him. You said that you were a king, the Christ. So come on. Save yourself. And what all the writers in the in the the gospel accounts, the good news accounts of Jesus want us to understand at this moment is that Jesus, as he's identifying himself as the suffering one, the servant king, while he's hanging naked on a cross, he's inviting us to say and to believe and to see that this is the Son of God being enthroned on his human throne whilst he's hanging on a cross. The crown of thorns, the cursing crowd, this is God at his best. This is Jesus coming into his kingdom. Unlike the kingdoms of the earth, unlike Judas Maccabees, unlike the Caesars, this is God in all of his glory. For his son hangs there on his throne. And the inscription down below is the King of the Jews. That was the crime you were being punished for. But the irony is that it was for those who knew him. This week I buried a 96-year-old woman. She used to come here in the first four years we started. Her name was Rose Mays. She ended up going to Salford Park as she began to lose her faculties. They came here just last Sunday, the family, and they said, she's died, would you bury her this week? And at Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock, I was in Box Hill Cemetery as we gathered around an open grave and as we lowered it down into that, that hole in the ground, we stood around and one of the granddaughters said, I want to tell you something about my grandma, Rose Mays. When I would, Whenever I would visit my grandma, every night I would see her kneel down before her bed and pray. She would pray for me. She would pray for our family. She would speak to God. That was the overwhelming impression that this grandma, this little itty bitty she was. She would kneel. I thought how interesting Easter's coming and there's a cross and it's supposed to be a throne and Jesus claims to be a king and that seems to be probably the most obvious and powerful, and only thing you could do if you believed he really was a king, you would kneel before him, and so every night she knelt before, if you like, her king, I spoke to one other person that was there, and I said, tell me, uh, how did you know her, and he said, I've actually come to faith, to believe in Jesus. I said, when did that happen? He said, about a year and a half ago. I said, how did that take place? And he said, over a period of time, I I began to understand and see who he was. And I remember sitting there in, in churches that I attended. And he said, there was a period of time in my life where I found that just for weeks on end, I would cry. Whenever I just came into the room, I would just find myself crying I said, you know, I believe that's God's spirit at work in your life. And he he said, I believe that to be true as well, because up to that stage in my life, there was only two times I'd cried in my entire life. And one of them was at my father's funeral. You see, he'd learnt, if you like, to experience the living Jesus alive in him. This morning, I'm asking you the question, who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question that he's asking you. Who do you say that I am? Because if you believe that I am Jesus Christ, then the only real response to a king is to bend your knee and say, you are Lord. Cindy's going to come in a moment and she's going to sing a song, a song of active worship, if you like, a song of adoration to this Jesus. But let me ask you this morning, who do you say he is? Is he just the gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Is the humanitarian Jesus, the just Jesus, the one who stands for your cause? Or do you see him as king? <laughs> Jesus said, whoever's ashamed of me in this world and my rulership and my way I'll be ashamed of them Want to come with the holy angels. You see, if he's a king, then would-be followers of Jesus need to be in the practice of bending their knees to him, just like Rosemary's. The posture of saying, you're a king, the suffering one, the servant king. That bids me come to you and I give my life for you because you died in my place. So that whoever places their faith in him may be forgiven and washed clean and released from the power of sin and evil. And brought over into a new family of God. Do you know him this morning? If you call him Jesus and believe that he died on a cross and maybe even came back to life, then the only thing to do is make him your king. Making your king this Easter. Making your king each day. One way you can practice that is by uptaking an old habit by an elderly, an elderly woman by the name of Rose Mays. Tonight, why don't you bend your knees at your bedside table.